Basically, Jesus is saying, we all have a window of time. We've given an allotted amount of time. And that we basically should seek as we live this life to do the work of God. And then Jesus says in John 17, 4, just before He's taken, He says, Father, I glorified You on earth having accomplished the work which You have given Me to do. And over the years, that verse has always intrigued me because it makes me wonder, was that just specific for Jesus? Because clearly God had a work for Him to do. There's no doubt about it. But this is the big question we need to ask. Does He have a work that He wants me to do as a businessman? Welcome to Reliable Truth with best-selling author Richard E. Simmons III. And now your host, Richard E. Simmons III. We're going to continue on in the book of John. Um, just kind of walk through it. Uh, for you who aren't here last week, I am sorry you, you really did miss the uh, <coughs> uh, a very significant um, part of John, and that's his encounter with the uh, Samaritan woman at the well. And... Um, we really kind of pick up there. At this, at, we're still at the scene uh, of the well uh, where Jesus has this encounter. So if you want to turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. And this morning we're going to look at verses uh, 31 to 35. And so if you would, just take a minute. 24 verses. Just take a minute and read those. John 4, 31 to 35. Jesus, I mean, it's very clear this woman has become a follower of His. We talked about this last week. He tells her He's the Messiah. She believes Him. And she leaves her water pot and runs off to tell... um, Many people believe the men in the town, you need to come and hear this man who's told me everything I've done. And of course, <clears throat> she'd been married five times and was living with a guy. So she had, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure in that town, a fairly tarnished reputation. And she was a Samaritan. And she was a woman. This was a patriarchal society. And yet Jesus reaches out to her. And this is a very significant, I mean, think about it. This woman, just uh, who seems very insignificant, I mean, think how famous she is. I mean, here we are. 2,000 years later talking about it. And the disciples come back. And they, they, in verse 27, which we didn't read this morning, last week it says, he said, why are you talking to this woman? And we kind of pick up there. And the disciples have shown up at the well and they have food for Jesus to eat. And they encouraged him to eat because I'm sure he was hungry. And then Jesus throws him a curveball in verse 32 and he says, I have food to eat that you don't know about. And you can imagine the disciples looking at each other. Did somebody bring, this, did somebody bring him food? In 34 he said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. You know, this is really the third time that we've seen in these first few chapters of John where we've seen Jesus contrast the physical with the spiritual. We saw that with Nicodemus. He talks about this spiritual birth. And Nicodemus says, what do you mean? How do you go back in your mother's womb and be born a second time? He, he's not, he doesn't get it. Then the, the, uh, the woman, he starts talking about living water. She thinks he's talking about something physical. And as we read this, the big question that we do have to ask is, what is Jesus talking about when He says, the food? I have other food. And according to verse 34, His food is the will of God and accomplish the work that God has for Him to do. And this kind of reminds me of when Jesus, and you can read about this in Matthew, before all of what we've been talking about happens. He goes out into the wilderness for 40 days and fasts. 
And you remember what Satan try how he tries to tempt him. He says, "Why don't you turn these stones into bread?" And you remember what Jesus said? Man does not live by bread alone. What he's saying is that life is so much more than just a physical, pleasurable existence. And you got to remember, you got to remember what just happened. Something had just happened. The disciples show up with the food, but something had just happened. We see a, a new convert, a new follower, who not only becomes a, a believer, but then goes out to invite people to come and meet and hear Jesus. And as you see, in verse 30 it says, they went out of the city and they were coming to him. So you, we got to have to kind of picture this. The disciples show up with food. The woman is out. Invite, come see this man, and they're coming. And so Jesus basically was doing his father's work, and he didn't see his doing his father's will and doing his father's work as a heavy burden but as the very nourishment of his soul. It impacted him as he was ministering to all these people who were coming. Doing the Father's will, in other words, fed and satisfied him inwardly. And that, I don't know if that's ever happened when you get involved in something that so you're so passionate about that you forget about everything else, even you know, even eating. Now, Tim Keller says this, and I've read this. I read this a couple of times, and it's kind of indicting. So, uh, if you feel like I'm meddling in your life, uh, maybe I am. I don't know. But he's when he's in one of his old sermons, he makes reference to this. He says, when Jesus says, "I have a meat you know not of," He says, you know, a lot of us are dying because of lack of a mission in our lives. For many of us, our biggest mission in life is just to make enough money so we can keep our lifestyle where you want it to be. As a result, he says, I think for many of us, our souls are shriveling up because they were built for something much more noble and much more heroic than that. What is it that Jesus Christ lives for? What is this meat we know not of that he says gives him joy? He says, I live to see people transformed through the touch of the gospel, to see institutions transformed, families transformed, marriages transformed, neighbors transformed, countries transformed, cultures transformed, and battered psyches transformed. That's what gives me my purpose. That's the food that he is referring to. Most of us do not have anything like that. But he has meat that we know not of. Now, I think he ra- Keller raises a good question to think about. Um, this idea of, of living with a sense of mission in my life. I mean, do, do we live with that? Uh, and can, if we do, can we artic- articulate what our mission is in life? Notice at the end of 34, he speaks of his great desire to accomplish God's work. And this always, if you as you get through the book of John, you will see this always seems to be on Jesus' mind. For instance, in John chapter 9, verse 4, He says, and he's talking to his disciples, and he says, we. He doesn't say I. He says, we together must go out and do the work of him who sent me as long as it's day. Because night is coming when no man can work. So it's John 9, what? 9, 4. Basically, Jesus is saying, we all have a window of time. We've given an allotted amount of time. And that we basically should seek as we live this life to do the work of God. And then Jesus says in John 17, 4, just before He's taken, 
He says, Father, I glorified You on earth having accomplished the work which You have given me to do. And over the years, that verse has always intrigued me because it makes me wonder, was that just specific for Jesus? Because clearly God had a work for Him to do. There's no doubt about it. But this is the big question we need to ask. Does he have a work that he wants me to do as a businessman? I think most people, whenever I talk about God wants to do a work through us, we think, well, i got to quit my job. No. We've talked about that. But does he have something he really wants me to do? Because I know it's easy. I know a lot of you guys are busy. It's, kind of like, it's hard to think. i got my plate's full. There's nothing else I can do. But the question is, do we think that God has something, a work, that He wants to do in and through us? And it may change over time, but does He? And by the way, I always tell people, the, the, if you've still got kids at home, that's your, probably your main work. But the answer, I think, is clearly yes. That's what Paul says. Y'all remember Ephesians 2.10? I probably... <laughs> Probably beat you over the head enough with that. We are what? We are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for certain good works, which He prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. <coughs> Let me ask you a question, and then I'll stop and open this up for a. Um, see if you have any comments or questions. Do you think. That this Samaritan woman was doing the work of God. Before, after, 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 after. after. No, obviously not before. <laughs> obviously, after. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and I asked that question because I think that's a part of why Jesus was so pumped up. You could argue she was doing the work before because he used her as a to, he, as a purpose, as he, an example. He, as a, exactly. I mean, it's all part of the plan. <clears throat> and but I, that's I think Jesus kind of had was pumped up because what was happening? Here's this woman going out. All these people are coming in. He kind of lost his interest in eating. And what was she doing? She was inviting them to come and see. Comments or questions on any of this? Anybody? You said business. Uh, uh, go back or remember and go to all the time what Elko, um, Kevin Elko said uh, in one of your, maybe your interview with you and Jimbo or <laughs> one of the times I heard him, he said, uh, he said if you just uh, be a blessing and serve others daily, um, it, it all comes into the play. By serving others, he went into, um, uh, they were serving each other. It just uh, uh, being on the interview and, and doing the work they do, they're being um, serving each other as uh, just in their presence. Yeah. And um, the blessing is, you know, just try to try to do go. that and be that to somebody. Uh, and even in business, I mean, in our business, if. The better we serve them, the better yeah. it is for us. Amen. And you know, <clears throat> um, this is what I'm learning, and I'm seeing this a lot, and you, you're going to see it. But I, I would encourage you also to, to be aware of the people around you who are hurting. You know, because there's a lot of a lot of pain in this life. And there, as Matt was saying that, it struck me. There's all kind of ways to serve others, but particularly when someone is hurting, to to to, to reach out to them. Um, that's how, I mean, I've got two people I'm getting ready to meet with um, who've reached out to me uh, this week. I don't, I don't know either one of them. But somebody, people have brought them to me because they're hurting. And one guy says, I want to go through this investigative study with you. I mean, you know, what, what can I say? That's, um, but, but somebody pointed him. And that's kind of what this woman had done. She, she didn't really couldn't didn't have much of a message to say. All she said was, come and see. Come and see. Which leads really into the work of God. And he begins to talk about... I mean, it's kind of interesting the way Jesus will be talking. People will come. 
things. You know, he'll 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 change he'll shift gears like he did with the woman asking, her, "Where in the world is your husband?" <clears throat> but then in verse thirty-five to verse thirty-eight, he begins to talk about this harvest and this idea of harvesting. And it's important to get the picture, guys. Again, it really, it's it's. I don't think sometimes we we see the whole picture here. Uh, he's been talking to this Samaritan woman who's clearly accepted him as the Messiah. And then in verse 27, the disciples come in and say, you know, why are you talking to this woman? Then he says, he brings up, the, you know, here we brought you this food deed. And he says, you guys really don't get it. I'm doing the work of harvesting. I'm harvesting to eternal life. He said, this is what life is all about. And so the question we need to ask is, because he uses it several times, what is harvesting? I mean, if you think about it, it's really, it's pretty simple. It's confronting someone with their spiritual need and then sharing with them the provision of Christ. Because, think about it, guys. Isn't this what Jesus did with this woman? He honed in on this thirst in her soul. And then he makes it. She was she was looking for sex and romance and men to satisfy that thirst. And he offers her offers her living water. You see, harvesting is taking the gospel out into the world. And what is what? Does anybody know what the word gospel means? It means good news. news. Good news. And think about that term, good news. What is news? Think about it. What is news? News is something, or I guess you could say something is considered news if you're ignorant of it. You don't know about it. Somebody says, I've got some good news for you. You know, one of the worst things in the world is you say, I've got good news for you. Tell me, so I already knew that. (laughs) But you know, when you give someone good news because you assume the person is ignorant of a part of reality that they need to know about. And in many instances, they need to know about it for their ultimate well-being. Or they may need to know about it for their ultimate safety. Guys, if we have the truth of any kind that can lead to the joy, can lead to the well-being, and can lead to the safety of someone else, we need to recognize it as good news that people need to know about. And this is what you see this woman doing. She's gotten this wonderful news about the Messiah. One that will satisfy the thirst of her soul. One that told God, He understands everything about me. You see, this is what the Gospel is all about. It starts by showing or sharing the news that we are sinners. I guess you call that, that's the bad news. But that Christ has come to make provision. He has come to redeem us. He's come to forgive us. He's come to bring us into a relationship with Himself that extends on into eternity. And guys, I want to just tell you this. So many people are ignorant of this. I know you've heard me share this. But I'll go through the investigative study with somebody and they'll look at me and they'll say... I've never heard this before in my life. As one guy said, I think I've never heard this. I think I'm mad that nobody's ever told me this. And I want to say this, and I don't say this out of arrogance. I just say this, that this is a reality. That I'm amazed at the spiritual ignorance that I encounter with people in our culture who go to who are church-going people. They truly don't. They're ignorant of the gospel. Now, this is not unusual because this is what Jesus is saying in Matthew seven twenty one to twenty three. 
It's one of the most powerful statements. I've seen God use these three verses more powerfully in the lives of, 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 of church-going people who aren't Christians. They just go to church, usually because their wife drags them. But what does Jesus say in Matthew seven twenty one? He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. He says, because on that day, on the judgment day, many people are going to come to me and say, but God, I did this, and I did that, and Lord, I did all of these good works, and I did them in Your name. And it says, Jesus is going to say to them, depart from me, for I never knew you. This is clearly a picture of people who consider them Christians who don't understand the gospel and they need the good news. They're ignorant of it. They need good news. This is what harvesting is all about. Now I want to ask you a question. I want you to think about this. This is real. I mean, if you, if you really try to picture it, I think it's really unusual. But why do you think this woman rushed into the town. You know, we said leaving her valuable water pot, which was essential, she just leaves it and goes out into the city and invites people to come and see. What do you think? What, I mean, I, I've tried I'm yesterday as I was finishing up preparation, I was thinking about why. what was her motivation? Why do you think she did it? Changed. What's that? She was changed. changed. Yes, yeah, she was not the same woman she had been. She was with the euphoria. I mean, just spreading the news. She was euphoric. Yeah, over what had happened. She she discovered the purpose of her life. Yeah, she, she did. The mess that it was. Yeah, I mean, she here was a woman that had life with a mess. <clears throat> and it's kind of like I found the answer to life. I mean, think about it. Now, this is my opinion. Here was the, the town's sexually immoral woman who everybody knew about. And she experienced this incredible love and compassion. You see no condemnation on Jesus' part. That's the one thing I love about this encounter. Because <clears throat> people, did, as you know, your, your average person in that town would have said, Lady, no wonder your life's messed up. You've been married five times, you're living with a guy. You don't see that. So she experienced His love and compassion. She recognized Him as the Messiah, or as they said in verse 42, as the Savior of the world. And you see her enthusiasm and her joy, or her euphoria, as Matt put it, as she leaves her water pot behind, not even worrying about what happens to it, to go out and tell the community, hey, come and see. Come and see. She wanted this is this is what it gets right down to it. Going back to news, she wanted to tell this good news, which her people, the Samaritan people, were ignorant of. And and do you see the results? Look at verse forty. It says, So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, obviously when they heard what he was saying. They asked Him to stay with them. I mean, think about it. They asked Him to stay with them. Tell us more. We want to hear more of what you have to say to us. And so what did He do? He stayed two more days. As we talked about last time, these people had a desire for the truth. Remember we talked, maybe it wasn't last, it was two weeks ago about how men love the darkness instead of the light. And we read in Acts about the about when they went to Thessalonica, so many of the Jews threw them out, threw them out, didn't want anything to do with them. These people, they were it's like they were thirsting. Stay with us. And he stayed for two more days. Comments or questions on any of this, guys? <clears throat> You know, um, I think when people come to Christ and experience His forgiveness and His love, um, 
and that they really re- recognize, as Paul says, that they've been rescued from the, the wrath to come. <clears throat> There's this, this, this desire, to, and I guess a feeling of, they feel compelled to tell others, others really out of love. I mean, they see it as a responsibility. And they invite people to come and see. Come and find out about this wonderful gift of God. And I think as you're a Christian, as time goes by, it's easy to kind of forget about you. You know, there are times, I don't know, for me, there are times where you're very enthusiastic and then there are times you're just not. What, what do you do with a good friend you might have that you know it would make a big difference in their life, but they're just totally resistant? Yeah, yeah, you, you just you, plant some seeds yeah, and let it go. Yeah, well, plant some seeds, pray for them, take an interest in them, bring them to the breakfast on Good Friday. <laughs> but that, that's a good question. And I, I know there. I've got a good friend who's who. who uh, he really is an atheist, and he sends he sends um, whenever he th- he reads one of my blogs that he thinks this might might he sends it to this guy. And this guy's just not interested. He's not engaged at all, and you know that nothing you do about that. But you never know. You never know when that might change. Usually, when particularly if their circumstances change and they find they're going through a difficult time, it's amazing what happens at that point. A good question, Charles. Anybody else? You know, there, there's so much more here in verses 35 to 38. You know, in verse 35, he says. Behold, I say to you, lift... No, he says, Do you not say there are yet four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. When he says, yet there are four months, basically he's saying, when it comes to agriculture, you know, if you plant a seed, you have to wait four months before you can hope to begin to reap the harvest. You've got to wait for it to grow. But Jesus says, you ain't got to wait four months. Look around you. Look at your sphere of influence. He's saying the fields are white for harvest. And then another spot, of course, he says, you know, the, the harvest is plentiful. The problem is the laborers are few. You know, as I, I look at these verses, guys, you know, it see, this is something, it seems, um, it really strikes me. And this, this, is, this, is, this is important. I, I, I think we, I'm talking about the body of Christ, we're kind of all in this together. <clears throat> because he says, one sows as, and another reaps. In other words, we operate kind of like a body. Think of think about this. Think about your own spiritual life. Think about the different people that God has used in your life. It may be an author of a book you've read. It may be your pastor. Someone in a Sunday school. Who knows? But it's kind of like we operate together as a body. An example right now is I'm going through the investigative study with two men that a guy brought to me. One of them is his own father. You know, it's kind of like, again, this is something we're doing together. One sows, another reaps. Think about it. Why did John the Baptist come? He came to prepare the way. You know what it says? So often when I meet with somebody, generally another person has been preparing the way. You play a role here, and then you, 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 and this is a great thing. You never know how what you do. You never know what your sowing might end up doing. You might not even know in this lifetime. I had an interesting situation. I had a guy ten years ago, really great guy. He's an attorney. Went through the investigative study with me. He became a Christian. And then I met with him probably four or five times afterwards. And I said, you know, why don't you come get in a Bible study? And I don't remember what he said, but he just, he didn't. 
and I never really know what's happened to it. And I ran into him the other day. And he starts telling me about his daughter was reading one of my books. And I, and I said, well, tell me what's, what's going on in your life. He said, we're really, really involved in Church of the Highlands. He said, my wife and I are very involved with the youth group. This guy is a dynamic Christian today. But we played a role way back here. Somebody else has played a role in his life since then. That's the way it works. And you never know what role that you or I might play in somebody else's life. But I, I really believe that one of the easiest things to do is just is what we've been talking about. And it just really hits me. Is that we're just invited people to come. To, we're just called to invite people to come and see. Uh, Charles, you can't make this man, you know. We God's got to do a work in his life. All we can do is invite him. Comments or questions? I love um, Psalm 37. It says, in the, the agrarian tie and cultivate faithfulness. I mean, cultivate faithfulness is asking him to come and see. You you watered just a little bit with this in this guy's life. Yeah. And 10 years later. Yeah. It was really cool for me to see that. I was so, because, you know, I... And, and what you just said is, isn't it interesting how the Bible does use agriculture for so many of the most important examples? And I think what you just said is right, Paul, because you know it's, it's involved planting seeds, watering and nurturing, and seeing, you know, you can't make it grow. That's why it says, Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered. But God is the one who causes the growth. God moves in people's lives. All we can do is plant and water. Anybody else? Okay, look at verse 36. I want to, I want to get y'all's opinion on this. <clears throat> Already he who, is re- who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may, re- reaps may rejoice together. That's the NAS. The NIV says, even now the reaper draws his wages, even now he harvests the crops for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Um, this is a kind of, I, I, I use, as I prepare this lesson from John, I use four different commentators. They're all theologians, so to speak. They're a lot, lot smarter than, than, than we are. and um, But it's interesting. Not a one of them really talked much about verse 36. Even my... I have a study Bible, one of those right there, that that kind of commentates on different... They didn't, they didn't even comment. They didn't even talk about verse 36. But what do you... Any thoughts on... What do you think it means? It says, receiving wages for eternal life. Any ideas? Any thoughts? Would it be what you just said that, that maybe an example of the guy you talked to that maybe you were the one that sowed and the Church of the Highlands is the one that reaps? Yeah. Yeah, it could be. You know, some might think, does this have anything to do with... Remember back in January a year ago, I did a three-week series, and some of y'all were not here then, on eternal rewards... It says because it says receiving wages. You know, what are the wages? A wage is think about it. We've been last a wage is something you earn. A gift is something you receive. Salvation and God's grace is something you receive. We talked last week about Paul calls it the indescribable gift. You can't earn it. But this is talking about wages. So that makes me wonder. And I don't I'm not I'm not saying I know what the answer is on this. I'm just kind of sharing with you kind of what I've come up with. Because, again, when we talked about the Bible, is very clear. Jesus, on a number of occasions, says, your reward in heaven will be great. And in Matthew 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, He talks about laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven. So, possibly, that's what He's talking about. But as I read all the different translations, I've got four translations right here. It struck me also he may be saying, guys, you and I have the opportunity to invest your life sowing and reaping, which has 
These are endeavors, he says, that have eternal consequences. I mean, think about it. I can't think of anything more meaningful in life than to be involved in something that has eternal consequences. What do you think? I mean, what? think about how meaningful that would be if you knew that you did something that has eternal consequences. Because everything, most of everything we do in this life has temporal consequences. And I don't mean to, well, I was going to say, because <clears throat> I use this sometimes for the Harvard Center downtown, but I can do it since Tommy, uh, Tommy's family has a building now. The Lucky Bill. How long will the Lucky Building be there? Who knows? Fifty years from now, they may tear it down. I was was over at the Eastwood Mall the other day. They're tearing down the old Kmart. I thought, good gracious! I, I I used to shop there as a kid, and now it's being torn down. That's the problem with this earthly life. You don't know how long things are going to last. But the opportunity to do something that has eternal consequences, I think, is huge. Forgive me for bringing your, your, your you up as an example, but I was just trying to think of something because we all. What we're doing is important, but it's all temporal. I mean, you have to earn a living, but it's all temporal. Rarely do we have an opportunity to do anything that has eternal consequences. Richard, let me ask you something about yeah. eternal yeah. consequences. Maybe this is my selfish side, but when I think of eternal consequences, I'm thinking about myself. Well, <laughs> it starts with us. I mean, I want to I wanna live in eternity in heaven and... I guess I'm more selfish about me getting there myself and helping helping others. Well, it kind of goes back because, you know, you and I have had this conversation several times. Is And that's the beauty, I think, of, uh, and we forget this, the, the, the importance and the significance of having an assurance of your salvation. And that's the great thing. And, and you know, when you, when you don't have an assurance is when we believe that my effort has something to do with me getting there. That my good works have something to do with me getting there. That's why we often have to always be continually reminded that basically salvation is a gift that you receive because we can't earn it. And once we have that, and we can be assured of salvation, then we can know that. And we don't have to wonder about it. But where we get off track is when I start saying, is there something else I need to be doing to make sure I get there, because when we, if you get to that point, when you go, when you, when you go in that direction, it creates the, this uncertainty. Well, am I really in? And, I, and I'll be honest, I think that happens a lot. It's easy to do, but that's the beauty of Christianity. That's the beauty of being saved by grace through faith, not as a result of good works. And so if you if that's happened, that's the good news is, you know, if we have received Christ and we know He is in our lives and we're seeking Him and we know Him, then you're assured of eternal life. And that's why, you know, because I, I, I have to deal with this with some men who um, who who've come to me and they say, oh, we believe that, that you're saved by grace through faith, but that you've got to maintain your salvation through good works. And my, my response to that was, well, then you're telling me you don't know that you're going to heaven. Uh, you're out of that. You're right. So you really won't know. You'll never be assured. You got to work, work, work to maintain your salvation. And that's a frustrating thing, guys, to be in that situation. In fact, I have I have recently gone back through the New Testament. I'm, I don't mean to get off track, but Tommy kind of got me going in this direction. But but I have gone back and just to, to is it is it clear? <clears throat> that you're saved by grace through faith. That works has nothing to do with it. And I'm convinced of it because of what the Scripture says. He says if it has anything to do with works, and he says then grace is not worth anything. All right, we got to keep going. I, I, I want to wrap. Basically, um, I want to wrap our time up and talk about the healing of the noble man's son. What do we read in verse 46? Let me, let me ask you this, guys. I don't think we have an appreciation for this. Do you know how far Capernaum was from Cana? It wasn't like walking to, into, down the Mount Brook Village. It was 25 miles. 
It was like walking maybe almost to Pell City from here. It was a hike. And this encounter with the nobleman is about, you know what it's all about? It's about belief and faith. And guys, as we get into the book of John, we learn that we live the Christian life by faith. And you're going to see that word belief in there a good bit. And to really get a good, really good, our arms around this, I want to ask you to turn to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, real quick. All right. Steve Rowe, how about reading verses 26 to 29? This is the risen Christ, and he's talking to Thomas. After eight days, his disciples again were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here with your hand and put it in my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. Now, he's saying in verse 30, in verse 29, in fact, in the Amplified, it said, Because you have seen me, Thomas, do you now believe and trust and have faith? Blessed and happy be to be envied are those who've never seen me and yet have believed and adhered to and entrusted and relied on me. You see, think about it, guys. In the early church, they saw many they saw Jesus. They heard him teach. Many of his miracles were done in public, particularly raising Lazarus from the dead. And then hundreds even saw the resurrected Christ. And they believed. But then he comes along and he says, but more blessed are those who don't get to see all these things and believe. Who's he talking about? Us. Us! So what are we left with? Faith. And and our that's a faith and our what is the foundation of our faith the word of god that's what we have we don't we don't get to see him appear or ascending to the fault but we have the word of god which is living and active it's god's revelation it's god's promise to his people now we've looked at this before but some of you weren't here we looked at this back last June. And this was right before we took July off. There weren't many people here. We, uh, we were talking about um, prayer. And we looked at Romans chapter 4. Because I think um, in Romans 4, we, see, we get a really good understanding of, of how we, you and I, are to operate by faith as we live this life with the Word of God. Romans chapter 4. Everybody there? Romans 4. We're going to look at verses 18 to 21. 18 to 21. John Wendell, you want to read those for us? Romans 4, 18 to 21. And this is talking, by the way, about Abraham. Go ahead. Against all hope, Abraham and hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him. So shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Very good. Thank you. Verse 20, I believe, gives some really important insight into faith 
I want to ask this question. Abraham based, based his faith on what? God had the power to do what he said he did. He had the power to do what he says he did. And, and right before that, he says his faith was based on what? Promise. The promise of God. God had made a promise. Abraham says, did not waver in unbelief. Or did not waver in his belief because of the promise of God. The promise that God had revealed to him. God, Guys, uh, faith has got to have a foundation. If Abraham did not have the promise of God, he would not have had that faith, would he? The foundation of our faith is what God has said to us. Now, some of you probably are tired of this example, but some of you have never <coughs> seen it. So, um, let me give you an example of, of having faith. <clears throat> I have something in my right hand in my pocket here. Anybody want to take a guess what it is? Your Cell iPhone. phone. Cell phone, iPhone. My hand. My hand. What's in my hand? I got. So I, I'm gonna tell. You, I got something in my hand. Coins. Hey, all you can do is guess. It's, all you can do is speculate. That's what a lot of people think Christianity is. Speculation. He's kind of guessing. Now, if I tell you. I have a rubber band in my hand. And I ask the question, Charles, what do I have in my right hand? What are you going to say? To figure out if I trust you first. That's right. <clears throat> Good. Now you have a rubber band. I have a rubber You, But he can't see it, can he? That's what faith is. You believe it. Because I've told you what it is. That's what faith is. Blind faith is me not telling you anything and you just kind of guess. That's speculation. And most people think you Christians have blind faith. No, we don't. We base what we believe on what we've been told by God through His revelation in the Scripture. Now, when I pull my hand out and show you the rubber band... You don't need to have faith anymore, do you? You've got a true knowledge. And that's what we'll have one day. We'll, as it says in 1 John, we will see God as He really is. Which is kind of mind-boggling to imagine what that's like. But at some point, we won't have to operate by faith anymore. We will have a true knowledge of God. You see, guys, legitimate faith has got to have a foundation. And that foundation is God's revelation in the person of Christ and His revealed Word. I was going to read something to you, but we don't have time. Let me just let me just say that. Look at verse four, back in John three, in verse forty-eight. Warren Beersby does not believe that this is a rebuke, you know, but Christ lament over the lack of faith in the people He encountered. Everybody, back in John chapter four. See verse 48? It looks almost like Jesus is, is, is jumping all over this guy because he's demanding a sign. But he's really, you know, he's not. He's, but he, 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 he realizes all these people are watching. They want a sign. Always asking for a sign. But this nobleman, he wanted Jesus to come with him all the way to Capernaum. And so this guy had some degree of faith because he came all this way and he made the request. But he believed that in order to heal his son, Jesus, you've got to come with me. But what did Jesus do? Based on the authority that he had, he said, Go, your son lives. And look at verse 50 in the NIV. It says, this is crucial, guys. What does it say? The man took Jesus at his word and departed. This is a picture of faith. Taking Jesus at his word. And this is why God's word is foundational in building your faith. You can't do it. You can't build your faith without it. 
You know, Romans 10.17 says, and faith comes by hearing. Hearing the Word of God. Let me say that again. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing the Word of God. Now back then, guys, they didn't have a Bible to read and study like we do. They had to hear it read out loud at the synagogue from the scrolls. We don't have to... And to hear the Word of God, we don't have to hear it. We can read it. And so for modern people, this verse could actually read, Faith comes as you read and you meditate on the Word of God. You see, our belief in faith should not rest... Our belief in faith should rest on what God has told us. It's responding to divine revelation. It's extending confidence on what God has said, what God has revealed, and what God has promised. And I'll leave you with this great illustration. It had a huge impact on me. I've shared it back in June. But my wife and I had just been to the beach with our kids. And we were... um, we had gone, I think, to get some, some, some groceries from across the street. And it was, it, was a, it was kind of a highway where there was two lanes going this way and two lanes going this way, and we were trying to cross those four lanes by foot. And it was a time of day where there was a lot of traffic. And so you'd look to the right and finally be clear, and, when you, and you'd look to the left and you there'd be somebody coming you look back to the right it was just, we were having a hard time getting across the street and so finally we said alright I'm going to look to the right and you look to the left and I and I will we'll kind of figure out how to get across and I'll and finally a gap came and I said honey we're good this way and for whatever reason she didn't say anything but run <laughs> run and she couldn't grab my arm because she had groceries in her arm. She said, run. And so I realized I, I, I was had to put my faith in what my wife said. I just started running. And I, as I was running, I realized, if she's kidding me, I'm dead. So but, she. Yeah, so, <laughs> but but it was it was You didn't have her arm. It, 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 that was yeah, I didn't have she didn't she didn't push me. I was putting my my total faith in what my wife said. And I remember run as I was running, I thought I, that was the thing. If there's a car coming, I'm done I'm done. Now I ran though. And I did it because I trusted my wife. Because she's the most, I mean, seriously, my wife is the most honest person that I know. But also I know that she loves me. And that she is committed to my ultimate good. And that enabled me just to run. But think, guys, how much more our Heavenly Father loves us. He says our love, His love for us is a perfect love. And He is committed to our ultimate well-being. And guys, we can rest in that. And we can find real peace in that. And that's why faith is so important. You've been listening to the Reliable Truth Podcast with Richard E. Simmons III founding director of the Center for Executive Leadership in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources, please visit our website at www.richardesimmons3.com or by email to richard at richardesimmons3.com.